Good morning, South Point. Uh, for those of you whom I have not had the chance uh, to meet, my name's Caleb. I have been a part of South Point for the better part of about eight years now. Um, some of you may not recognize me nor believe me. Um, part of it might be because the last time that I was here uh, more regularly and consistently, I was about this tall and I had a lot less hair in this area. So uh, I look a little bit different than I used to. Another reason you may not uh, recognize me is because I've been in school for the last four years. And so I, I uh, was in southwest Missouri for a while and, and uh, I went to a school called Ozark Christian College. It's a, a medium-sized a Bible college where I, I earned my bachelor's degree. I met my wife, Lauren, and as soon as I graduated, I said, we are leaving Missouri and coming back to the promised land that is Rhode Island. <laughs> and so here we are. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we moved here in June, and we, we've been so happy to be here. Um, what I do for a living, well, kind of a living, is I work for an organization called Mustard Seed Network. Uh, Mustard Seed Network aims to glorify God by planting gospel-centered churches in urban Japan. Um, not many people know, nor are they aware, that uh, Japan is actually one of the largest remaining unreached countries in the world. If you were to walk up to someone in the streets of Tokyo and ask them about um, what they think about Jesus Christ or uh, Christianity or the Bible, they would say, I don't know what that is. There's uh, nowhere in the Japanese imagination for Christianity, and so... When Jesus says to go out and make disciples of all nations, Lauren and I believe that he is calling everybody to do so. And so we're planning to move to Japan uh, next summer. So we're fundraising for that. So if you're um, interested in learning more about Mustard Seed Network, I would love to talk to you. Um, but in the meantime, while we're preparing to leave, we're also um, trying to help out at South Point whenever way we can. And so for me, that includes preaching, right here, um, teaching uh, classes uh, that are offered, and so uh, like how to read the Bible, that just happened. That was a, a class that I helped teach. Um, and then primarily what my wife and I's job here is to start a new community for young adults. And so if you are a high school graduate, if you are still in college, or you have graduated from college, or it was a long time ago, and you say you just graduated, but you're still in your late 20s, um, we would love to have you. This is for you. The name of our group is called Life Together, and it's where we're going to study scripture, but also spend time together in community. Um, that's all I have to share about it right now. There'll be more on that later. Um, so they have a timer on me, so I have to get going. Uh, we, we are in a series um, called For Real. Uh, we've, been, we've been walking through the book of James, if you're just joining us, and we've been uh, in it for a few weeks. And what James does in his letter that he's writing to a group of Jesus followers is keeping it real, honestly. That's what he does. And I feel like it's only appropriate um, in the way of James to tell you a very, very real story that I promise actually happened. Um, it's a story that um, I know from a friend of a friend. This guy is standing in a lobby of a church. And uh, I don't know how much time you spend in church lobbies, but one of the things you immediately learn as you stand in a church lobby is that one of the primary things that happens out there is small talk. Uh, this guy hates small talk. It makes him nervous. And so uh, when he is in a church lobby, he is trying to get out as soon as possible. Some of us relate to him. Um, he also is newly married, though, and so he's trying to learn how to navigate social situations while also having his wife standing right here next to him. And so he comes up with this strategy for how to exit conversations as fast as possible. It goes a little something like this. He's talking to someone, wow, it was so good to see you. How are you doing good? How's work? You have a good week? 
all that good stuff. He looks at his watch and goes, wow, look at the time. We probably should get going. He puts his hand on his wife's back and says, we should head out, and then gives the person they're talking to a joke for their, uh, for their way out. And so the joke usually, it has the same formula. It changes a little bit in the wording, but his favorite one was, we should make like a baby and head out. Uh, if you don't get that one, you can call your mom. Uh, and so as he's standing in this church lobby, uh, he's talking to someone, and then they go to turn to leave, and he looks up, and his father-in-law is right there about to engage him in a conversation. He goes, okay, I can do this. So he's standing there with his wife, talking to his father-in-law, has the same polite conversation, and then he goes, wow, look at the time. We should probably head out. And so he puts his hand on his wife's back, and he says, uh, we need to leave, but it's always, it's always good to see you, Mr. Smith. And then he goes to say, uh, we should make like a baby and head out. But instead what he says is, we're going to head out and make a baby. <laughs> and then he died of embarrassment. But uh, what he did is he got his words mixed up. And we all do that. Uh, maybe that may not be as embarrassing as um, saying you're going to make a baby in front of your father-in-law, but we all get our words or our actions mixed up. What about, um, this happens to me all the time, I'm in a room and I start walking in one direction, don't know what I'm doing, I need to go that way, and so I like pull out my phone, all of a sudden I get this really important message and I have to walk the way I meant to go, and all of a sudden no one knows that I made a fool of myself and walked the wrong way. Or um, let's say that uh, you're texting a, a really good friend about um, someone else, about what someone else did, but you're not thinking clearly, and then all of a sudden you're texting someone else about someone else. Okay, none of you have been there, that's fine. Um, maybe it's been a long week at work, and uh, you, you're going to restock your groceries, so you, you get in the car to head to the grocery store, but you're just kind of tired, you're on autopilot, and then you look up 10 minutes into your drive and you realize that you're driving into work. Yeah, okay, so I got like two nods, that's good. Um, so so we, we've been mixed up. We all get mixed up sometimes. And when James is writing his letter to this group of, of Jesus followers, he, he's kind of writing about the same thing, that they have their view of the church and their view of themselves mixed up. Uh, when James opens his letter, he, he talks about how they have this wrong idea about church, that church is just about showing up on Sunday to hear the word, but then Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, it doesn't matter what you do. But he says, you got it mixed up. It's about both. You have to hear and you have to do. They, they have the church mixed up in the way that they show favoritism. They think that if they uh, keep the, what seem to be the good seats, but no one's sitting there, um, for the people that are important in the front, and then the poor people sit in the back, like that's how you honor God. But it's like, no, 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 you got it mixed up. The church is about equality and transparency, and the, the footing at the ground of the cross is even. It doesn't matter who you are. You got it mixed up. But it's not just about how they treat the church. It's about how they see themselves and how they see each other. Uh, in chapter 3, what we just uh, preached on last week, is about how they use their words. They think it doesn't matter how they speak or who they speak to or the ways they say them because words don't hurt, right? No. He says you got it mixed up. Your words are hurting yourselves and other people. And, and then he focuses uh, further into who they are as people and he focuses on the heart. And he says who you have seen on the throne of your heart is mixed up. And that's what we're focusing on here today. So what I want to do, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, I want to treat James like the cold open of a TV show, like you saw with The Office just now. Um, if you're not familiar with TV, a cold open 
is where you start the episode at the end of the period of time that you're supposed to be watching, a day, a week, or whatever, and it introduces a problem. And then this problem is explored backwards instead of forwards. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to open up James at the end of our section and explore the problem of what's wrong with our hearts backwards. And so this is what James says in James chapter 4, 11, uh, verse 11 through 12. James says, Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? On a surface level reading of this, these verses, it seems like James is specifically calling out a judgment of one another, and that is true. If you take it a little bit deeper, though, into the root of who we are, the real problem, not the real problem, the deeper issue it's not that we judge one another, but our deeper issue is that we replace God. We, uh, we try to become the gods of our own lives by putting ourselves on the thrones of our hearts, and then that mentality bleeds out from our own treatment of ourselves to our treatment of other people, and that leads to judgment and condemnation. You, you may not believe me, but I think that if you paid attention to it in our culture, you'd see it pretty regularly. Uh, open up your social media app of choice. I don't know which social media apps you're on, and frankly, I'm not on any of them, so I don't really care. Um, but your social media app of choice. Scroll for a couple of minutes and see the latest cancellation that happened and realize that we think that we're able to cancel someone's existence, and that makes sense somehow. Uh, uh, look at your friends' uh, accounts. Notice how they're probably uh, carefully crafted and curated content it is um, only the posts that get enough likes because they need to feel the most amount of praise from their followers. Sounds a little bit like we're trying to be a god. And the ones that don't get enough praise, they get deleted because we don't want anyone seeing that we're not getting enough praise for what we're doing, right? Uh, you can take that away from social media and bring it more towards yourself. Uh, when we are facing a problem, something serious or not serious, we don't lean into other people and say, wow, I really need help. Do you think you can help me out? What we do is take a step back from people and we say, I need to work on me for a while. I'm going to do me. You can do you. And we believe, or at least we're told and we believe, that if we take enough cold showers, if we wake up early enough, if we make enough money, have enough friends, have enough followers, or have enough family or people who surround us, that all of our problems can be fixed. But I'm here to, to tell you that our problem is, is that they may help now, it's a band-aid, though, and they're not going to fix what's wrong with you permanently, whether that's emotionally, spiritually, or physically. You cannot be your own God. You cannot be your own savior. You cannot be your own provider. That's for us as people. And, that's how, and then it bleeds out into how we treat other people. And when we become our own saviors or our own gods, we have these lists of standards, of, of ways that we expect people to be able um, to behave. And when they don't meet our expectations of behavior, it's, uh, I'm sorry, I, they're toxic, i got to cut them out. But everyone has it. Here is my list of ways that I think that I should behave versus the ways that I do behave. What I should do versus what I do do. And as you, you don't have to read the whole list if you don't want, um, but what you'll notice is that who I should be in my head versus who I am is inconsistent. I am, I am not the person that I uh, think that I should be. 
I'm not a gambling man, but if I were to take a bet, I would bet pretty confidently that if we all took about five minutes, that we would all come up with a list that looks a little something like this. Who we are versus who we actually are. Who we want to be versus who we actually are. And, uh, and the problem with us trying to become the gods of our lives is that we're inconsistent. And putting your faith in something inconsistent that is inconsistent will inevitably lead you to hurt and to disappointment. And so this is the problem. If we try to replace God, we are on a path destined for hurt and disappointment. So how can we reposture our hearts? How can we uh, change who's on the throne of our hearts so that we are not destined for disappointment and for hurt? This is what James explores uh, in chapters uh, 3 and 4. So there, there are two parts that get played in this uh, exploration. The, um, one part that gets played is by us. The other part that gets played is by God. I want to explore both. I want to start with us, though. Um, our part to play in this, in the changing or the reposturing of our hearts, has to do uh, with starting by stopping. Let's read James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. All this is is a list of commands. James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So it's a rapid-fire list of commands. James says, submit yourselves to resist, to come near to God, to wash yourself. All these things, and what all these things have in common with each other is that they include a stopping of one thing and replacing it with something else. James says, stop pretending to be the God of your life and replace it by submitting to God. He says, stop, trying, stop giving in to temptation and sin and replace it by resisting the devil. Stop being too busy all the time with, with your job, with your significant other, with your TV, with your phone, uh, and with your Amazon shopping habit, and, and put that aside for at least 10 minutes a day and stop and come near to God. He, he says, stop living in filthiness by replacing it with uh, clean hands and a pure heart. Start by stopping. Clean hands and a pure heart sound like great song lyrics, like maybe in the song we just sung, they would have been fit in perfectly. But, but what does it mean? I mean, other than just go in the bathroom and wash your hands, what does it mean? Uh, I think that, that there's not, I, I don't have time to talk about every single thing in this text, unfortunately. If you want to be here for a couple hours, I would love to do that, but I don't think anyone does. So there's a, there's a word in here that I think is particularly helpful for us, and it's that word double-minded. That word double-minded, uh, it's a word that we never use, so we don't know what it means, but we actually do know exactly what it means. Uh, the idea of double-minded is to sit on the fence. It's to be uh, indifferent. It's, it's to stand in the middle between uh, beliefs or opinions or people and hope to be pulled to one side or pulled to another, but you're never going to choose which side you get pulled to. And as you, you flip through the library of Scripture, you realize that indifference is actually a problem. When Jesus is writing letters to uh, these churches, these seven churches in the book of Revelation, he writes to a church uh, named Laodicea, and this is what he says about indifference in Revelation chapter 3. It says, this is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation, all that is Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, I know all the things that you do. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you're like womb, 
lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, so then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes to be able to see. I correct and I discipline everyone whom I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. There, there's some imagery you have to sift through there. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to treat all that either. But if, essentially what Jesus is saying in Revelation chapter 3 is that he doesn't want your indifference. It's very clear. He wants you on one side or another, but he prefers you on the side that's for him because he is for you. He wants what's best for you, and he wants to give you good things that lead to a good life. Not a good life that we see as rich and famous or whatever, but he has good things for you in store, and he wants what's best for you. And he wants you to choose the side that he is on. And that would be a great sermon right there, right? Everything relies on you to fix all your problems by yourself, and that's it. But this is not a self-help TED Talk, so we got to stay for at least 10 more minutes. Trying to fix your sinfulness by cleansing yourself is like trying to break a match with three fingers. You just can't do it. Okay, I get it. It's weird. It's a weird metaphor. A, a match is a funny thing. A, a match is small, and it's insignificant. It's cheap. And uh, it's easy to break. You can break it whenever you want. But when we try to become the gods of our lives and we try to do things our own way, hardly ever do we choose a good way of doing things. And uh, when you, you try to break a match, you don't choose a good way. And all of a sudden, you just can't do anything about it. A match is a weird metaphor, but I imagine that it might be... Um, uh, something that any number of people could relate to in this room. It, because a match, it, we, the way we talk about it kind of reminds me of the way that a lot of us tend to talk about the problems of our lives. They're small. They're insignificant. We can break free anytime we're ready. We're just waiting. Maybe, uh, maybe a, a match represents a habit or an addiction you've been struggling with for years, but whenever you try to break it, you just can't. Maybe it represents a, a relationship, one that you're stuck in, one that you don't feel safe in, and whenever you try to leave, you just you can't break free. Maybe a match represents the weight of your hurt, the hurt of hurting other people or the hurt that you feel from other people. Maybe a match represents the weight of your guilt and your shame from a sin that you just can't seem to break. It's funny that a match could represent so many things. And when, when we try to break through these problems by our own strength, we just can't. But if you reposture your heart, or a reposturing position to take yourself out of the way and put God on the throne of your heart, it changes your position changes the way that you approach things. And all of a sudden, you're no longer working against God, but God is actually working with you in your problems. And when you go to try to break free, you do it no problem. So this is our problem, is that we try to fix our problems by our own strength, but we just 
can't break free, and we need God's help. And that's the other part that gets played in this, is that God's part for us is that God gives us grace. I want to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's kind of divided into two sections. The first section is about a lot of the same things we've already talked about. Our disordered desires, our attempts, our attempts to manipulate God for our own purposes, all those good things. But then the second half really focuses on what God has done for us, and that's what I want to focus on. This is what it says. James asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend them on what you spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says that without reason, without reason, that he jealously longs the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So uh, what James is t- points out again is our, our problem of trying to become God, and in our trying to become God, we become double-minded and we waver between relationship with God and relationship with the world, but what does God do to fix this? It, it says that God gives grace to those who choose to humble themselves beforehand. So you do have a choice. Your choice is humility. That is a part that you have to play. Um, when I get a chance to talk about humility, I always like to bring up uh, C.S. Lewis, an author, uh, his definition of humility. And he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. So humility isn't self-denigration. It's not bringing yourself down, but it's actually freedom of your mind. Humility frees your mind from being so obsessed about yourself and about everything that happens to you. You actually have more a capacity to focus on who God is and what he's done for you, and in turn, what you can do for other people. That is humility. It, that is your choice, but I'm not here to talk about you. I'm here to talk about what God has done for you. And so it's a small but powerful line in verse 6. James says, but he gives us more grace. If we're really going to be honest with ourselves this morning, grace is something that we've never deserved. It doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are or how bad of a person you think you are. All of us have, have failed enough in our lives that we don't deserve any kind of gift from God. But, but the point of grace is that in, in place of a punishment that we deserve for our failures, God gives us a gift, and that gift is freedom. It's freedom from two things. It's freedom from our, our fear of death, and it's also freedom from us being separated from God by sin. But the way that we talk about grace oftentimes is that it's something that's like a down deposit or it's this weird eternal savings bond that only matures after we die, but that's not how it works. Grace is something that happens to you right now as soon as you choose to humble yourself and submit to God, and then he starts, you start a relationship with him and he starts a relationship with you, and that starts right now and goes into eternity. That is what grace is. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you struggle with. It doesn't matter how you've been hurt who you've hurt, or how you plan to hurt someone because of your hurt, God gives us more grace. That's the good part. That's the really good part. So if we have a part to play, and God has a part to play, and those two parts come together, I think the last question in our minds this morning might be, would my life really be better 
if God were to take his, his position in my heart on the throne? Would my life really be better if I chose to humble myself before him and lift him up instead? I think that our answer comes from James uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James um, talks about how God's wisdom is freedom from selfishness and disorder. This is what he says. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What James does in a couple of paragraphs is he writes a comparative list of statements about the difference between living by God's wisdom and living by the world's wisdom, and it's a pretty striking list. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be the person on the left than the person on the right. But what's really striking to me about this list that James pens nearly two millennia ago is that he hits on the fact that a life separated from God's wisdom, but rather living by our own wisdom, leads to a life of self-obsession. You're selfish, you're jealous, you're exclusively self-serving, you're always wanting what's best for you, but you're always thinking about yourself at the exact same time. And self-obsession leads to self-elevation, you put yourself in the place of God. And self-elevation and self-obsession leads to worry. Worries is not listed in this list. I wish it was, but that's, I, James had his purposes. Uh, uh, self-obsession and self-elevation will always leave you worried about everything. You're always going to be worried about what people think about you. You're always going to be worried about the way that you look. You're always going to be worried if other people think that you look good. You're always going to be worried if people are being your friends because they want to be your friends or being your friends because they're trying to use you for their own purposes, which, which is what you do to other people anyway, so what does it matter? It, it leaves you worried uh, about, uh, about your relationships, and maybe it makes you worry so much that you start losing relationships. And, and so what James is trying to accomplish in writing James chapters 3 and 4 is he's trying to make the point that you are not your own savior, and you can't be, because you will inevitably be disappointed and hurt by yourself, by your own inconsistency. But the good news on the flip side of that is that there is a perfect savior who is consistent, and you can put your hope in. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, what he does is he showcases this second, this left side of the column, this living by God's wisdom, and how that does, in fact, lead to freedom. Uh, Jesus, even though he was himself God incarnate, when he is on earth as uh, in the flesh, he, he spends his last couple days in the Garden of Gethsemane kneeling and praying to God. Jesus uh, sees the path forward for the world it is them to experience salvation through his death. But he, he asks God, the Father, for there to be a different way. He, he knows that suffering is right in front of him, but he prays and begs for there to be some other way for the world to experience salvation. But he knows that God sees the bigger picture. And when he, as he prays, he realizes that this is the way forward. And so he humbly submits to God's wisdom. When Jesus humbly submits to God's wisdom, that puts him directly on the path to the cross. And even though, as you read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus is perfect, he doesn't do anything wrong, he doesn't deserve death on the cross. In fact, it's reserved only for people who 
uh, our criminals. He, he dies a criminal's death because that's what we deserve. But he takes our place. He takes our substitution. And instead, he dies for us so that we can experience freedom. But Jesus dying isn't just like uh, the Iron Man and the Avengers Endgame. He didn't just die so that people can come back to life, but he too was resurrected by the power of God and so that he breaks free from the powers of sin and death. And so now he brings a new reality for you and for me that those who put their faith in Jesus can too experience freedom from sin and death, freedom from their problems, and too share in the resurrection power of Jesus himself. Because Jesus submits to the Father's will because he knows that God's wisdom leads to freedom even if it's through the path of suffering. He experiences resurrection power and the same is true for you and for me. I don't know what your problem is this morning. I know what my problems are. But I can promise you that if you chose to reposture your hearts and you, you humble yourselves before God and raise God up in your life instead, that he will give your pain and your suffering a purpose. I can't promise that God is just going to take away your pain and your suffering like that because I don't think that's how God uses pain and suffering. I think instead what he does is he sees it and he makes a purpose out of it for you because he wants what's best for you. I think that's the beauty of the, the, the comparison that James draws between us as people and God as God is that we are inconsistent and we're going to fail ourselves and when we're suffering and when we're hurting, we're only going to make it worse. But when we're suffering or hurting and we give ourselves to God, God is consistent and we can place our hope in him because he has a purpose for our pain. And so you can be in your darkest hour or you can be in your deepest valley. You have no other place to put your eyes but up. And when you look up, you can look at the hill that Jesus died on and you can look with hope and confidence because you know that God has a purpose for you and that you can have freedom if you choose to trust him. So this is the good news. That Jesus, it is through Jesus that we know living under God's wisdom does, in fact, lead to true freedom. I, uh, I obviously went backwards through our text. So I wanted, I wanted to take a moment to say what this text would look like if we were going forwards. We would, have, we would have discovered that through God's wisdom that our self-obsession turns to humility. And by the strength of God's grace that he empowers the humble by grace alone. And because of God's grace, we stop wavering between God and the world. We get to go all in on the good life God has for us. And it's by this that we gain freedom. Freedom from our own self-obsession. Freedom from hurting the relationships around us. Because we can put our faith in God. We can freely set our eyes on him, submit our hearts to him as Lord of our lives. And when we do so, and we bring our small and insignificant problems, change our postures, he can help us break free. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have all to be here and to gather and hear your word. I thank you for James and, and the way that he, uh, he wrote this section. I, I thank you for the purposes that you're accomplishing in all of us through our pain. I pray that uh, through this word that we would choose to lift you up and to elevate you as the Lord of our lives, put you on the throne of our hearts and submit to you daily so that we can find out that life with you is good and you want what's best for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.